Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Techspansive. I'm Sean Dubrovac from Avrio Institute. And I'm Ross Rubin at Reticle Research. This week, the uh, big announcement coming out of Redmond is that Microsoft has launched a new device as part of its Surface hardware portfolio. The new laptop comes in at uh, $249. It's a uh, 11.6 inch screen called the Surface Laptop SE. It's designed exclusively for schools and for students and primarily for K through eight, which I think is a really interesting market segment that uh, has gained in increased interest in having computing products as they also had to go remote during the COVID period. As part of that announcement, Microsoft also unveiled its Windows 11 SE, which is essentially a Chrome OS rival, uh, again, aimed at schools and uh, in particular K through eight. So uh, a really interesting announcement. I think it's a, a logical extension for Microsoft to make. Clearly, Chrome OS saw a significant growth during the uh pandemic and during the, the lockdown, as students had to move to devices, parents tried to uh, to get devices in their hands, and school districts did as well. Chrome OS offered a low-cost option for many of those school districts and for many of those, those households, and so uh, Microsoft clearly saw that as a threat and has entered that market now. Yeah, this reminded me quite a bit of Microsoft's education event that they had a few years back where a number of their hardware partners showed off low-cost uh, Windows PCs uh, right in that 200 to $250 price bracket, uh, but they really weren't as effective as uh, the hope was uh, in competing with Chromebooks for a couple of reasons. Uh, one key thing is it's not just about the price, it's about the manageability, and uh, Microsoft uh, focused a lot at this announcement on a number of the steps that it's taking to improve managing these kinds of PCs for administrators and IT, a special version of Intune, uh, their management suite, their MDM suite for, uh, for, uh, for education. Uh, Windows 11 SE, we've heard rumors about this thing for a long time, and the real question on the table has been how will Microsoft compete with the web focus of Chrome OS while allowing native apps uh, for, for Windows 10? And it's been a very interesting compromise. Uh, for the most part, you cannot install regular Windows apps on Windows 11 SE. Uh, however, there are some exceptions. They have designated six, uh, six categories of exceptions and as you might imagine, they all come down to things that are focused on education. So different kinds of learning tracking systems, different kinds of productivity uh, applications, things that you would want on, a, uh, on, on, a, on an educational laptop. Uh, they've also done a, a nice job on the repairability of the devices, which again is a big shift from where the rest of the surface line is where they're really trying to compete with that sleek, uh, minimized uh, look that uh, that Apple uh, has in the marketplace. So, 
So I, I think it's a good example of how Microsoft can shift directions for, for this market where they have been losing share. And uh, we'll, we'll have to see where it goes. Another interesting thing, by the way, uh, you have your choice on whether you want to run Edge or Chrome as the browser supporting all the web apps on uh, on these devices. So, uh, so again, here's uh, Microsoft doing what it can, making accommodations in the client uh, operating system and and their device. Uh, also important to note that there were at least half a dozen third party notebooks announced that will also run uh, Windows 11 SE uh, and, uh, and and doing what, what they need to do to compete in the name of driving uh, those upmarket manageability uh, systems. It isn't unlike what we also saw announced this week from Apple, where they unveiled a what they're calling business essentials for SMBs. So this includes things like device management, iCloud storage, and and more. It's designed for businesses of up to 500 employees. So it really is targeting that small and medium-sized business. It uh, is in free beta starting today in the U.S. and will be fully launched in the spring of 2022. It uh, starts at $2.99 $2.99 a month. So you, you see Apple's strategy, again, is moving towards services. Uh, a natural extension for them is business services, where you have a lot of users using their devices and their other services. And so you now want to help those employers onboard some of their employees, especially for some of these smaller businesses. It, it, I think it's a very natural extension for them and likewise, as you noted, Microsoft is looking at more than just the operating system. You know, the, the old historical model was license the operating system and then make money also on all of the software that runs on top of that operating system like Office and other things like that. But uh, we're in a new paradigm where we're using low price, uh, light clients, in, in many of these instances, especially for that segment that Microsoft is targeting, that K-8 segment. Uh, and so I think you're going to see these businesses continue to look for adjacent markets that they can extend their services into uh, in, in order for Apple to continue to grow. Uh, we've long noted in the podcast that they would have to do more than sell hardware. We've watched them move into consumer-facing services and and now we're seeing them extend into businesses i don't think they're done there either and just as microsoft is in some way catching up to what google has been doing in the education space uh, over the past few years apple one could easily argue is catching up to what some of the pc vendors such as uh, lenovo and, and hp for example have been offering in terms of device management, device as a service. I think that one thing they're betting on longer term is that they can run these services more profitably uh, because they can have more control over the platform, because they can make changes uh, in particular to Mac OS to make it more appliance-like and make the management of it more like an iPhone. I think that you've kind of seen this this push uh, over in, in each iteration of Mac OS uh, to try to make it more 
uh, iPhone-like. And the question, I, I think actually last week, we talked a little bit about Craig Federighi uh, expressing his dissatisfaction, right, with the level of vulnerability in uh, Mac OS at, at its level of openness today. And so I, I can see that as a, as a mandate uh, to keep plugging those holes, closing those holes, even as it comes at the expense of openness. Um, you know, there's, there's definitely more of a line there that has to be straddled uh, than you have in the, in the uh, iOS market, in the iPad market. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, that is the direction where things are moving. And it'll be interesting to see how they execute because one of the features that they're including as part of this uh, business essentials is 24-7 access to phone support for both IT staff as well as end users. And I, I have yet to really experience phone support that has an Apple-esque experience to it. So will Apple be able to maintain a uh, kind of their strong brand value while also trying to deliver phone support at a, at a low cost? It'll be interesting to see how they end up delivering that. We also saw other interesting announcements coming out of Microsoft this week. Microsoft and Meta announced that they will be partnering to integrate workplace content into Teams and plan to integrate team video meetings into workplace groups by early 2022. So uh, as much as we often see the large tech companies pitted against each other to uh, commandeer market segments. Microsoft came out right after the the meta announcement, and we talked about that on the podcast, how they embraced the um, metaverse. They were obviously already doing a lot in augmented reality, virtual reality, what we call extended reality. But uh, that was kind of the first time I really saw them embrace the metaverse in, in name and, and latch onto it, which I found a little bit surprising since it came right on the heels of Facebook renaming their entire company around that. So anyways, we have Microsoft and uh, the company formerly known as Facebook, Meta, now yeah. partnering to, uh, to do more in the metaverse and probably not the last announcement we will see from them. They're both very committed to this. Microsoft wants to be a big player in providing business services in that environment. And I think we'll continue to see more from them. Now, this is uh, a partnership between two companies, Sean, as you say, who are true believers, I, I would argue, on a different scale uh, and certainly in the short term, uh, somewhat different target customer focused. Uh, Meta, of course, dominant in the consumer market today for VR headsets and uh, Microsoft looking at HoloLens and a lot of their mesh uh, VR efforts uh, for the the enterprise. If you saw the Ignite keynote, uh, Satya Nadella certainly focused on uh, many of the commercial use cases for for AR and VR, which is where uh, a lot of the ROI is today. But uh, workplace, of course, is Facebook's kind of um, uh, Facebook for work uh, <laughs> offering. So it's a lot of the functionality of Facebook, which uh, is a lot of rich functionality. It has, of course, groups and chat and uh, timelines and 
uh, you know, many of the uh, capabilities that we have in the in the consumer Facebook offering, but but which are useful in, in the workplace as well. And I think there's also some alignment around the the understanding that uh, Meta for probably the certainly next uh, year, 18 months, is really in the catbird seat when it comes to leading uh, on the device front. You know, they are uh, far and away the value leader today. Uh, even if you take away the subsidization of the of the headsets that they do, and uh, and they have shown a bit of the roadmap that they are following. I thought it was very interesting, uh, Sean. You mentioned prior to the Microsoft uh, keynote, there had been all of this uh, talk about how Accenture had purchased sixty thousand Oculus uh, headsets uh, for onboarding of their. Uh, consulting staff, their professional services, and at Ignite, it came out that they are running Microsoft's uh, platform, uh, you know, Microsoft's content and, and mesh network, mesh offering on the headsets. Uh, so, so it is a uh, Microsoft really has uh, a software offering that could drive uh, a lot of sales of uh, of Oculus headsets. Uh, for for the short term, uh, and, and one of the things I picked up from uh, Mark Zuckerberg's um, discussion about pricing is that uh, they need to bring in cash uh, to pay for all this investment. You know, they're they they want to keep the prices of the headsets low. They want to keep the share of revenue that they take from developers from the app store low. So you got to make money somewhere, and one way they can do it is by selling these unsubsidized, uh, high-quality headsets into the enterprise, and Microsoft can help them do that. And I think as we approach the holiday season, you are going to see a lot of headsets sold. I think that uh, you're starting to see a good uptake in the hardware, and I think next year really could be uh, a breakout year for the, the use of at least home AR and, and VR and shall I say metaverse-scene or whatever the, the verb is to, uh, to, to do in this environment. But it'll be interesting to see what the uptake for, for business is that will probably lag the consumer applications. But as you noted, Accenture putting you know 60,000 headsets in to ultimately homes will, uh, will also potentially expand the uh, the business use cases as well. Yeah, I think they're in a great position for the holiday. There's really, you know, the, the PS5 and the Xbox Series X are still supply constrained. Uh, the Switch, you know, has been out in the market for several years. So if you're looking for an entertainment experience in that, you know, three to $400 range, I, I really can't see anything touching it. So. It's definitely on our list. I have uh, my kids have said they they <laughs> want to get one. We we've played with VR and AR over the years on different uh, devices, but don't have the the Quest Two yet. So we'll be adding that to the mix this holiday season. Uh, we also saw a report this week that uh, Meta has been discussing potentially opening up retail stores globally to showcase some of their devices made by the Reality Labs division. So things like AR glasses, VR headsets. So 
I, I think um, that's a move we've seen a lot of other manufacturers make in times where they're trying to promote a new type of technology or or their new hardwares. They'll have these uh, you know, showcase environments and even retail environments. So, uh, you know, there the, we might see a retail push there in 2022 as well. I seem to remember them having uh, these little demo areas in airports a couple of years ago. I, I definitely remember something like that at JFK back uh, back when I was in airports. Uh, something that we'll be picking up again soon. Uh, but uh, but yes, uh, it's a, it's a good place to to reach folks. So. Yeah, I think it, it will be interesting in a post COVID world if there will be a lot of interchanging of headsets and trying on headsets that will be a new challenge for them to overcome but for sure uh, you are seeing it show up in more places i saw a big display in costco touting the, the quest 2 so you you're, you are seeing it show up in a lot more retail environments and as you noted it is in stock and appears to be well stocked headed into the holiday season we also saw news this week from Netflix, interesting news from Netflix, where they are uh, doing a couple of, of new things. We've talked about their games and their their move into games, primarily leveraging some of their brands that they have exclusive access to, things like uh, Stranger Things and other things like that. So uh, Netflix Games has arrived on the Apple's App Store and users can uh, will be able to access that through the Netflix iOS app this week and um so you you saw that last week we saw the the, uh debut lineup of the mobile games to android so um we'll see how the uptake of that goes we also saw that uh they are rolling out what they call kids clips which is a tiktok like feature that shows new daily short videos from its children's library one of the things I think has happened as uh, we evolve in how we're using the internet is, you know, Netflix was was very much a destination. If you wanted to watch a show, you wanted to watch a movie, you'd go to Netflix. And then when you were done consuming that, you'd leave Netflix. You weren't lingering there. Uh, you didn't go back for short little clips. And so other things started to fill in those voids things like Instagram, where you can kind of go to Instagram, you can spend a minute there, you can spend an hour there, you can think you're only going to spend a minute and end up spending an hour there. Uh, I think TikTok has those same dynamics. Uh, Maybe even YouTube with its autoplay creates some of those same dynamics. Certainly, I think Twitter does where you think you might just be there for a few minutes and you end up being there for uh, much longer than you anticipated. And I think other platforms are going to try to develop features that will bring you to their platform for shorter periods of time when you're trying to fill shorter voids. And so that feels to me partly what's happening here with uh, Netflix new new feature, Kids Clips. And one of the things that strikes me about it is that I've actually been surprised or had been surprised at how high the uptake of Netflix was on mobile, you know, particularly given the length of the programming there, particularly a lot of movies, although I imagine a lot of the TV series, you know, 24 minutes, an episode, whatever, uh, wasn't wasn't too bad. But, uh, but yeah, certainly not optimized for mobile and certainly not compared to 
something like TikTok or Instagram's uh, Reels feature. Instagram, incidentally, uh, this week, uh, we're, we're seeing an announcement that they're looking to uh, perhaps implement a, a take a break feature uh, that could uh, let you know at certain intervals that uh, you should wait for it take a break uh, from uh, watching so much video on Instagram. Uh, but, uh, but TikTok, I think, has been really uh, the, the pioneer, uh, for better or worse, in terms of uh, just having these endlessly scrolling videos. And, you know, as you know, Sean, it's a really smart move on Netflix's part to leverage their intellectual property. I also think maybe it helps them compete a little bit better with Disney+. Plus. Uh, which has been such a strong offering uh, for for families with with young kids. They have that uh, unmatched content library of uh, of classics, uh, and uh, here it's a it's a pairing of uh, the some of some of the Netflix uh, investment in kids content, which you tend not to hear as much about, uh, in a format that is uh, well suited for mobile consumption. A similar announcement uh, in spirit this week from Amazon, uh, which owns uh, Prime Video in terms of capitulating to the kinds of things people do on mobile. And uh, they'll be introducing a feature in their iOS app, which will allow uh, users to share up to 30 seconds of video uh, with uh, friends, Twitter, whatever. Uh, and uh, and again, this is a good example of them taking their long form content and uh, leveraging it, finding a way not only to leverage it in mobile, uh, but to get a little more social capital uh, out of it by uh, by taking advantage of a better virality. Uh, because without that, you know, the the places where those things tend to happen are are YouTube, right? And you tend to see a lot of shows that have their own subscription are on their own subscription services or or are archived on their their website i tend to think of snl for example right lots of short sketches uh very mobile friendly and yet a lot of the virality of those clips take place on youtube so i uh, this is you know particularly given amazon is uh not always uh thrilled uh having uh Having some of its uh, moves constrained by a Google property, uh, it's it's a, it's a good way for them to uh, to work around that. And this really goes counter to everything that traditional content uh, creation has has stood for. If you step back to the days, you know, going back to Betamax and the battles there, it was all about. Uh, you know, we're going to control the distribution. You're not going to copy it. You're not going to save it. And and it turns out, right, the big boon for the content community was the play button on the VCR, not the record button on the on the VCR. And uh, you know, likewise, you see Amazon saying, "Hey, look, we own the rights to this, and we're going to allow you to to clip it as much as you want, any way you want, essentially, and share that in your networks and to your your point really build off the virality of those social networks. Amazon has spent a significant amount of money, I think, on advertising some of their hits. We've you you see them uh, some of their exclusive movies being heavily advertised 
on non-Amazon platforms. So uh, they're looking at a new way to try to grow their viewership and to, to do that. And I think it speaks to how the, the relationship is changing between content creators and distributors. You know, in the past, you had somebody make a movie, they distributed it through the movie theater, they distributed it through uh, through a blockbuster, but they still owned the rights to that underlying content. But now you're seeing companies like Netflix, companies like Amazon outright buy the content and they're going to do whatever they want to with it. Netflix move into gaming is a prime example where they're creating the derivative products from the titles because they essentially own the the IP, the intellectual property. So I think it's a really interesting shift that we're seeing take place. And we might see more as the distributors look at other ways uh, to, to uh, share the content that they actually own. Absolutely. And it's certainly no surprise that Netflix is paying more attention to this as the competition has been heating up with uh, rival services that have an incredible richness of of IP. So uh, I guess if you can't uh, own them, grow grow them (laughs) or something. Uh, And so, uh, you know, they're going to, I, I think they've had some success with that, certainly nothing on the scale of, of a Marvel uh, or, uh, or a Star Wars franchise. Uh, those are, of course, uh, you know, unicorns, but, uh, but they can do a lot, I think, to, uh, to, to build up their, their own franchises and, and merchandise them, as we saw with the Walmart uh, agreement a, a few weeks ago. So, um, so the, yeah, that's, uh, that, that's an opportunity. This week, we also saw... Twitter Blue finally come to fruition, something we've talked about in the the podcast before. This is Twitter's subscription service that adds new features and expands what uh, you're essentially able to do on Twitter. The service first launched in June in Canada and and Australia on iOS. And uh, starting uh, Tuesday, starting this just past week, Twitter Blue also became available in the US and New Zealand and also on Android and on the web. So we continue to see it expand. It allows you for a fee to watch ad-free news in the U.S. It allows you to undo tweets. And uh, we continue to look at you know ways that Twitter can try to monetize their platform beyond just advertising. Yeah, I, th- I think the undoing of tweets is probably the most uh, controversial one uh, in terms of um, charging for that. I don't think many folks take issue with some of the other benefits of the service, but the ability to undo tweets is, is a bit of a sore spot for people who've been on the service for many years and have uh, pleaded and begged with Twitter to allow editing of, uh, of tweets as is uh, available on many other social services such as uh, LinkedIn and Facebook. And um, the response from Twitter has been to throw up its arms and say, you know, we don't know how to do this. Uh, It's really not that complicated. And in fairness to Twitter, uh, that is not what they have done. They have not uh, offered the ability to edit tweets, only the ability to undo them 
kind of like a little buffer uh, similar to the undo send uh, capability that's in um, Gmail that gives you a, a buffer of whatever, 30 seconds uh, before uh, it sends the, the email. So, uh, so, you know, clearly this is going to appeal to the heavy users, uh, folks who would like to be able to catch that typo uh, before it, it uh, hits the world and not have to delete it and repost it. Uh, there's also a feature for being able to string together longer tweets, uh, I believe, which is a, uh, uh, something that is becoming a lot more commonplace on, on the platform. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it's uh, $3 a month in, in the U.S., uh, for a, a group of features that don't seem super well integrated to me, but but I think which would have value to to heavy users. Many of these features were already available, at least in f- other services, uh, and Twitter bought some of those services, closed them down, and integrated those features that were most popular into this new subscription service. So one example is Nuzzle. Which they uh, which they wound down when they bought Scroll. It allowed you to see the most shared articles in your feed, and I I found it to be a very useful feature if I just wanted a quick update of the articles that people are talking about, and I could look at and read the articles that people were actually discussing. And uh, so they've integrated that into the service. So I think the mix of features that are showing up in Twitter Blue is partly a function of services that, uh, to your point, people liked and have been integrated into a subscription-like service. So it will be interesting to see if people are willing to pay $3 a month for it. I I really liked the, the Nuzzle feature. I don't know that it's worth $3 a month to me, but um, maybe if other things come to this in a Prime-like approach where more and more features show up, that uh, you, you end up subscribing because the the service is much better when you are a subscriber. I'm frankly surprised that Twitter didn't offer a trial of it, uh, give it to all members for a month or to all members with a certain number of subscribers. I would think that it would be useful to them just to have the feedback from a lot of those high-profile Twitter users, whether positive or negative, uh, just to promote uh, the service. They did do a very cute uh, intro video that was styled uh, like a a 1980s uh, aerobics uh, video, kind of like a Jane Fonda uh, retro kind of uh, of video. So that that was funny. Uh, but, uh, But yes, particularly given the, you know, awesome size of uh, Twitter's audience, uh, it's very surprising to me that they wouldn't offer either just make it a forced trial where they just give it to everybody uh, or, uh, you know, allow people to opt in to a whatever, one month trial, two week trial, whatever. So, And you are still going to see ads even if you do pay for, for Twitter Blue. So you, you get ad free sure. articles, but you don't get ad free Twitter experience. So it'd be interesting to see if that ever comes to Twitter Blue and what people would uh, pay for that. Well, they certainly indicated that it would need to be more expensive for for them to offer that. So. Yeah. 
Uh, probably a great place to end this week's episode of Techspansive. Again, I'm Sean Dubrovac. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Dubrovac. And I'm Ross Rubin. You can find me on Twitter, whether blue or otherwise, at Ross Rubin. Thanks for listening.